Now, I'm hoping that some of you will have this passage memorized by the time we complete this series because it's been our scripture reading every time. This morning, I want to start with a question. How many of you have a sibling? If you do, raise your hand. All right. Most of you raised your hand. I didn't ask you to put your hands down yet. Keep your hand up if you don't mind. If you've got a sibling, keep your hand up. Now, put your hand down if you like your sibling. <laughs> I, yeah, there are still some keeping their hands up. Yeah, you, everybody can put their hands down now. I was just really watching to see if any of the Burnettes put their hands down or not, you know. <clears throat> you know, having a sibling can be a challenging experience. Having a brother or a sister is not always enjoyable. Sometimes it is. Now, if you have a sibling, I, I have an older brother. He's three years older than me, and he is legitimately adopted. Usually when I say he's adopted, people think I'm just making a joke. No, he's legitimately adopted. He's six foot two. That should tell you something. <laughs> and we haven't always gotten along. When we were younger, I was the annoying little brother, and he was the annoying big brother. You know how that goes. But if you have siblings, you might appreciate some of these quotes about brothers and sisters that I've come across in the past week. Older siblings are like your parents' personal science fair. They're just a bunch of experiments. Little siblings prove that sequels are never as good as the original version. The oldest child always sets the bar. Thank goodness they set it low. Having sisters is like living in Cinderella's house. I'm pretty, overworked, underappreciated, and they're evil. My brother is my partner in crime until we get caught, then he did it. And people say my sister and I look alike. When it's a compliment, she looks like me. When it's not, I look like her. And then finally, I wouldn't trade my siblings for the world. I don't have anywhere to put it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why, why begin a sermon talking about brothers and sisters? Well, it's because the next virtue in our list of virtues here from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, this list that we're calling Faith Plus because it's identifying all these virtues that we're to add to our faith, the next one on the list, the sixth one on the list, is brotherly kindness or brotherly affection, depending on which translation you're looking at. Now, Brotherly kindness. If you're like me, that might sound like an oxymoron. You know, one of those words that cancels each other out because they don't go together. Well, brotherly kindness, how do we wrap our mind around that if we don't have a good brother or a good sister? How do we understand this terminology, this expectation, this thing that we're supposed to add to our faith? Well, the, what you need to understand is that the term being translated here means much more than kindness, even though today I'm referring to this lesson as faith plus kindness. The idea is much bigger than just kindness, because the, the Greek word being translated here is Philadelphia. Now, you might know what that term means, because the sixth largest city in the United States is named Philadelphia, and you might know it by its nickname, the city of what? Brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia literally means in Greek. Brotherly love. 
See, it's much bigger than just kindness. And Philadelphia, as a Greek word, is actually a compound word. It's made up of two Greek words that have been put together to form a new word. One of the words is phileo, which is one of the Greek terms for love. And the other word is adelphos, which is the Greek term for brothers. So, as I mentioned, Philadelphia literally means love of brother. And in the New Testament, it was the term used to denote a love between fellow believers, brother and sister in Christ. And it had this idea of a family-like devotion that should characterize the Christian community. So why don't our English translations just say love or brotherly love here instead of brotherly affection or brotherly kindness? Well, it's because they're trying to distinguish this term from the next term in the list, which we'll address next week, because next week's term is agape, which is love. And so when Peter rounds out his list of these things we are to add to our faith, he uses two different terms for love. Now, the Greek language had more terms for love than we do. That's because they wanted to distinguish different types of love. Because I can say that I love my daughters, and I can turn around and say, I love cheesecake. Does that mean I feel about cheesecake the same way I do for my daughters? Absolutely not. We use love loosely sometimes, at least in our terminology. The Greek language, therefore, had multiple words for love that they employed to distinguish what they're talking about. And the two that make their, their appearance in Scripture are phileo, the brotherly love, and agapao, this much greater love, this, this sacrificial, distinctly Christian kind of love. And sometimes those words are used interchangeably in Scripture. So, for instance, if you were to skip over to Romans chapter 12, in verse 9 and 10, You'll re- we're going to look at this verse later, but right now, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10 says, Let love be genuine, and then follows that up uh, in verse 10 with love one another with brotherly affection. Well, guess what? In verse 9, when it says, Lo- let love be genuine, that's agapao, and then, or ag- agape. And then you get to verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. That's using phileo. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, that's Philadelphia, love one another earnestly from a pure heart using agapao. Sometimes scripture uses these terms interchangeably, but there are other times where they're used to distinguish between each other. And that's the case here in 2 Peter chapter 1. Context helps us determine that. And here it's obvious that Peter is wanting to say, hey, you need to add Philadelphia to your faith, and then on top of that you need to add agape to your faith. You need to add this brotherly love to your faith. This is love for one another as part of the Christian family. And then in addition to that, you need to love, you need to add this agape love, which doesn't have the specific parameters of just being within the confines of your Christian family. We'll talk more about agape next week, but I want you to understand that in the context of 2 Peter chapter 1, love is mentioned twice, does mention, it is specifically referring to two different things. So today we're going to focus on this brotherly love. Why does brotherly love make the list? Why does it 
matter so much? Well, I want you to understand, and I'm going to continue to use the word kindness because that's what our translations use. Brotherly kindness matters because it proves our love for God. Look at what John said about love in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Now, now John does not employ the word Philadelphia here, nor does he use any of its cognates, but he clearly makes a connection between our love for God and our love for our brothers. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, John writes this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's a big must. John clearly indicates that our relationship with God is contingent on our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether or not we love God is evidenced by whether or not we love each other. And as one preacher said, if you are wrong on loving others, then you can't be right with God. And so this idea of brotherly kindness, this expectation of adding it to our faith is essential, is non-negotiable, is expected because brotherly kindness proves our love for God. But we also must notice that brotherly kindness will prove our association with Christ. After giving his disciples a new commandment in, first, or in, in John chapter 13, verse 35, look at what Jesus said. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here's what we learn from this passage. When Jesus selected the means by which his disciples could, by, be, could be identified by anyone, at any time, in any place, he chose love. Now think about that. When it came time for Jesus to, de to decide the defining attribute of a disciple, he didn't choose service. He didn't choose faith. He didn't choose humility. He didn't choose truth. Even though every one of those things is good and is associated with the Christian, he didn't choose those to be the identifying traits. He chose love, specifically love for one another in the Christian family. You know, throughout history, people have tried to communicate that they were disciples of Jesus through a variety of means. They've dressed in particular clothes. They've worn particular jewelry. They've slapped particular bumper stickers on their vehicles. They've tried to separate themselves into particular communities or practice a particular level of purity or even pursued a particular political means to enforce an agenda. But Jesus didn't tell us that any of those things would make us known as his disciples. He told us that the identifying mark of a disciple would be our love for other disciples. And so brotherly kindness matters because it proves our association with Christ. 
And the point that I want you to get from these first two observations about brotherly kindness is that it is not a trivial matter. I think this is apparent when you examine Jesus' conversation with Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You may recall this from John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus will three times ask Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter will respond, you know that I love you. And you've probably heard this before. In fact, I know I've preached on this before. But the first two times Jesus posed this question, he used the agape form of the word for love. And every time Peter responded to Jesus, he used that phileo form of the word love. And it gets really interesting because on the third time that Jesus poses the question, Jesus changes his term for love and uses phileo instead of agapao. Now this may be one of those occasions in Scripture where these two terms are just used interchangeably, but I think it's too, too significant to overlook the fact that there are these different terms being used by Jesus initially and that Jesus will then change his term. I think it's very interesting that Peter will not use the term that Jesus uses. This is Peter we're talking about. See, we understand that agape love is the premier love. Do you know why we know that? Because we have the New Testament. We have something Peter didn't have in his possession. And so when we open our Bibles and we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, and we read this chapter that defines love, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, and we read all these definitions associated with love, guess which word it's using? Agape. And, and when that chapter says the greatest of these is love, guess which word it's using? Agape. When we go over to 1 John chapter 4 and we read that God is love, guess which word is used? Agape. When we go to John chapter 3 and verse 16 and we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, guess which word for love is used? Agape. So we have the insight. We have the ability to look at Scripture and go, hey, agape must be the premier form of love because it's the greatest of all these. Here we've got Peter, who's being asked by Jesus, do you agape me? And let's be honest about Peter for a moment. Peter was not one who was shy about being bold with his words. Peter was a guy who would say things you and I would not say. They're on a boat. Jesus is walking on the water. Lord, tell me to come to you and I'll step out on the water too. Or Peter's the guy who when Jesus says, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem and die. No, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. Peter's the guy who at the Last Supper is told you're going to deny me three times, and he's like, that's never going to happen. If I have to die with you, I will. 
Peter's not afraid to make bold declarations. So I don't think he's shying away from pronouncing a great love for Jesus, especially in light of the fact that he had just denied Jesus three times. I think on this do-over he's been given, he's not going to make the same mistake twice. I think for Peter, as he's hearing Jesus say, do you agape me? And he turns around and says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. I think Peter, in his mind, is using a better term of love. I think he thinks that this phileo term is a step above the agape term. I think he's trying to say, Lord, I don't just agape you, I phileo you. Because when we use this word, we don't grasp the depth of it. As one author pointed out, this phileo term, it connotes a close bond between those in similar situations with similar goals and mutual care and concern for one another that cannot be fully described simply by the term friendship because it is so much deeper than that. Phileo is that bond that teammates develop because they've competed together. Phileo is that bond that soldiers develop because they were in combat together. Phileo is that bond that family members have because they've gone through tragic life experiences together. Phileo is that love you develop between someone who's gone through life with you and only they know what it's like. So I think Peter is declaring, Lord, I love you so much more than agape. Because he doesn't know how the terms are going to pan out in history. And I think that's why phileo matters so much. Why it's commanded of us. I referenced Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 a moment ago. I'm going to reference it again in a little bit. But Romans chapter 12 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. That's a command, and that's using this Philadelphia term, this phileo love that we've been talking about. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, Philadelphia, a tender heart and a humble mind. Have this. Possess it. It's a command. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1 says, Let brotherly love, Philadelphia, let brotherly love continue. Don't let it stop. All throughout Scripture, we're commanded to have brotherly love. But what does that entail? First thing I want you to understand is that brotherly kindness requires expression. One thing I found interesting in my study of this term Philadelphia and its cognate phileo, which means love, is that the phileo part of this word, the love part of this word, is sometimes translated kiss in the New Testament. And that's because not only does this term mean to love, but it also means to show signs of love. In fact, if you were to turn over to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 48, or Mark chapter 14 and verse 44, or Luke chapter 22 and verse 47, and all those passages are referencing the same story, if you turn over to those passages, pardon me, by the way, I've been sick, 
But anyway, um, if you turn over to any of those passages, you're entering the Garden of Gethsemane. And what you have is the term phileo being used to describe the action in which Judas engaged to betray Jesus. And what was that? A kiss. And so Scripture says that Judas entered the garden and went up to Jesus and phileoed him. He kissed him. It was an action demonstrating love. Okay. It really didn't demonstrate love in the moment. That's just the Greek language. Use the word phileo to refer to love and to an action that demonstrated love. It kind of makes it all the more powerful when you read Jesus' response to what Judas does. And Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a phileo, with a kiss? And because the term for love is also the term for kiss, it makes complete sense that Paul and Peter would instruct Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss five different times in their combined letters. Five different times we are instructed to greet one another with a holy kiss. We're told to greet one another with a holy kiss more times than we're told to bear one another's burdens. More times than we're specifically told in this language to serve one another or to forgive one another. Five times greet one another with a holy kiss. So who wants to come up here and give me a kiss? as I continue to use these Kleenexes to wipe my nose. Here's the significance of the greet one another with a holy kiss command. This form of greeting was a tangible way to express the love that brothers and sisters in Christ possessed for one another. And guess what? We're still expected to greet one another with tangible expressions of love today. We may do it with a hug or a handshake or a fist bump, We might even do it with a card or a text or an email or a phone call. We might not employ the holy kiss because we're more germaphobic than they were. And it's not as much of a cultural norm in our society today. And we've got technological improvements that allow us to demonstrate our love in other ways. But just because we may not kiss each other, the way they did in that culture, doesn't mean we shouldn't express our love for one another in tangible ways. You know, I think that's why one of the most popular books on relationships over the past 20 years has been The Five Love Languages. How many of you have read The Five Love Languages? All right, not, not as many as I thought. How many of you have taken a love language test and found out your love language? You need to do that. It's free. It's online. I can send you the link. That book was released in 1992. I didn't realize it was that old. As of this week, it has spent 358 weeks on the New York Times advice and how-to bestseller list. And why is that book so popular? Because, as its tagline suggests, it teaches people how to express love through words of affirmation or quality time or gift-giving or acts of service, or physical touch. You see, one thing we aren't always good at is expressing love. I might be one of the worst. And the reality of 
this brotherly kindness expectation that Scripture presents is that I must express my love for you as my brother and sister in Christ in a tangible way. So how are you and I doing at that? How are you and I doing at this expectation of expressing love? Because I imagine there are some of us here today that truly feel loved because people have expressed it to us. But I'm even more certain today there are people here in this audience or online that don't know that they're loved. Because no brother or sister has expressed that to them. There's been no greater expression of love than what Jesus Christ did for you and I. And then he says, now you love one another as I have loved you. That comes with tangible expression. And so I challenge you this week, if you take nothing else from my sermon, take this. Find a way to express your love to someone who is your brother or sister in Christ that you've never expressed love to before. Don't choose the easy route. Don't choose your best friend. Don't choose somebody that you associate with weekly. Choose somebody you've never expressed love to before and find a way to do that this week. Because that's part of this expectation. That's part of this virtue we're to add to our faith. And one last thought as we close out today. This brotherly kindness also requires effort. I've referenced Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10 a couple of times already, but I want to do it one last time. I want you to notice Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul said, let love be genuine. And then in verse 10 he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Let love be genuine. What is genuine love? What does it require? If you actually keep reading through Romans chapter 12 and you go on from verse 10 to read verses 11 through 18 roughly, you're going to see different ways that Paul says your love can be genuine and it all requires effort. So in, at the end of verse 10, he'll talk about outdoing one another and showing honor. Verse 13, it's all about contributing to the needs of the saints and about showing hospitality. In verse 14, he'll talk about blessing those who persecute you. In verse 15, about weeping with those who weep. About, in verse 16, about associating with the lowly. Verse 17 talks about repaying no evil. In verse 18, talks about living peaceably with all, so far as it depends on you. None of those are easy tasks. To fulfill that list of expectations that follows this let love be genuine command, that will require intentional, sacrificial effort. I've also referenced a passage from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 earlier. 
Let me appeal to that one as well. It says, since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters, fervently, other translations will say earnestly or deeply, love one another from the heart. Paul defines the love that we're to have for one another as a fervent or earnest or intense love. But what does that require? Now, this is not as easy to spot as it is in Romans chapter 12, but if you journey through Peter's epistle, you'll see some instructions he gives. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he'll talk about putting away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. In verse 17 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he'll instruct us to honor everyone and to love the brotherhood. That's set in the context of of him telling us to be subject to those governing authorities, to be subject to our husbands, to be subject to our wives, to be subject to our masters. He'll go on in the third chapter, in verse 8, to tell us to have unity of mind, to have sympathy, to have a tender heart, to have humility. He'll also instruct us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 to not repay evil for evil, but instead to repay with a blessing. And like Paul, Peter provides a list of tasks that are not easy, but that are associated with how we, how we achieve this love. They all require intentional, sacrificial effort. Here's my point in referencing these two passages. Is that brotherly love, this brotherly kindness we're talking about, it has to be worked at. It takes effort. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know that good, healthy habits tend to take a lot of work. Years ago, Sarah and I found ourselves dealing with a lot of debt. We weren't very smart 20-year-olds, or at least I wasn't. Let's say it that way. I wasn't a very smart 20-year-old. And we had too many credit cards. In 2012, we decided we were going to do something about it. So we enrolled in Dave Ramsey's financial piece on our own, just did it on our own at night, and started working through that program. And, and we just decided, okay, we're not going to live this way anymore. We're going to get out of debt, and we're going to live as good financial stewards. And so we started having to make really tough decisions. Having to live within a budget every month. That's not easy. Having to pay off credit cards instead of spending that money on something we want to do. That's not easy. Making deliberate decisions not to go out to eat or not to buy that product choosing to this day to drive one of the ugliest vehicles in Buford is not easy. And the fact that you laugh, you know that I drive one of the ugliest vehicles in Buford. I have to make deals with Sarah whenever I'm involved in a funeral. I have to say, hey, I need you to take my car today because I'm going to be at the front of that procession because I'm driving behind the hearse. It hadn't been easy. 
And it took eight years. It took eight years. We don't have any credit card debt anymore. Eight years of really painful and difficult decisions to develop the habit of financial stewardship. When I look at brotherly love, the love I'm supposed to have with you and, and you're supposed to have with me, it ain't going to be easy. Pardon my Arkansas slang there. But it's not. Because it takes work. But Jesus was willing to do that work, and he's asking us to do it as well. I'm reminded, as I draw this to a close, of a story provided in the book called Written in Blood by author Robert Coleman about a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. And the doctor explains to that little boy that she had the same disease he had recovered from a couple of years earlier, and her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the two of them had the same rare blood type, the boy was the perfect donor. So as the doctor sat down with him, he finally asked the boy, he said, would you be willing to give your blood to your sister? The boy hesitated for a minute, and his lips started to quiver, and he started to shake a little bit. And then he said, sure, for my sister. They did the blood transfusion. And near the end of the procedure, the boy with that needle in his arm and watching the blood flow out, he looked up to the doctor and he asked, when do I die? And it was only then that the doctor realized that the boy hesitated and trembled when he gave his answer because he thought he was giving all of his blood to his sister and that he was going to die in order to do it. So when that boy made the decision to give his blood to his sister, in his mind, he was deciding to lay down his life for her. And Jesus declared that there is no greater love than that. But Jesus didn't just declare it. He did it. Jesus, the Son of God, loved you and I so much that he laid down his life for us so that you and I could become children of God. And so figuratively speaking, that makes him our big brother. I don't say that to demean, to demean him or to lower him to our, our standard because he is so much greater than us. But he's shown us what brotherly love means. And it may be today that you need to respond to his act of love by confessing your faith that he is the risen son of God, repenting of your sins and being immersed in water so that your sins can be washed away. Or it may be that you're here today and you realize you haven't loved one another the way you should and you want to change that. Whatever need you might have right now, we extend the Lord's invitation. Won't you come